Good morning. morning. It's good to see all of you here, and I'm grateful to be able to join you for worship this morning here at Ivy Creek. Those of you who are in the room, those of you who are joining us online, we're grateful for all of you and for your attendance here today. And if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, take them out and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew and to chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. I wanted us to look at one of the classic Christmas texts this morning, and you're probably aware that there, there, that the, the events and the, the situations surrounding the birth of Christ is, is only really told to us in, in two spots in the New Testament. It's told to us in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the Gospel of Luke focuses more around the actual birth of Christ and the events that occurred there. It tells us why Mary and Joseph were actually in Bethlehem to begin with because of the census that had been ordered. It, it tells us that, 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 that Jesus was born in a manger and the reason for that was because there was no room for him and his family in the inn. It also tells us about the shepherds who, uh, to, uh, to them, appeared this great host of angels that, that announced to them the birth of the Christ child and, and how the shepherds went and worshipped Christ there in the manger. You find all of that there in Luke's account. Matthew, on the other hand, doesn't deal with any of those events. Matthew actually covers not just not the night so much that Jesus was born, but actually a time many, many months later, as mentions is 18 months to two years after the birth of Christ. And, and at this point, Joseph, Mary, and the toddler Jesus, they're still in Bethlehem, but they're no longer in a manger. They're actually in a house. And the shepherds, they've gone back to tending their flocks and taking care of those things. But Matthew tells us about a different group that came to, to worship the Christ child. Matthew describes about a group of magi or wise men who traveled hundreds if not thousands of miles to, to go and, and, and they were guided by the star to come to the, the place where the, the child was so that they could worship the one who was king of the Jews. And I think it's worth noting that while the Christmas carol that we sing, We Three Kings, is a, is a wonderful Christmas carol that remains popular at Christmas time, Matthew never says there were just three of them. And he also doesn't tell us that they were kings. We actually, though, do are alerted to a king in Matthew. Uh, he tells us about Herod the king. He's Herod the Great. And, and the wise man who, when they came to Jerusalem, encountered Herod the Great, the great king of the Jews that was there at the time. And, and we, we see about that interaction in Matthew's gospel. And we're also introduced to a second group of wise men. These were not wise men from a foreign country who studied the stars. Rather, these were the wise men who were Jews who studied the Old Testament scriptures. They were the Jewish chief priests and the scribes. And so with all of the actors that Matthew tells us about, all the different people that are playing a part in this story that he's describing here in Matthew 2, what we find is we become aware of three different responses to Christ the King that I want us to examine today. In fact, that's the title of my sermon this morning. And what I want us to do is to look at those different responses, and I want to make the case that every single one of us in this room will ultimately respond to Christ the King in one of these three ways. And what I want you to know is, is that the response that we make to the revelation of Christ the King in our lives has massive and eternal consequences for each and every one of us. So that's what I want us to do this morning. Let's read the text. Let's hear what Matthew tells us with regard to Jesus and these, and these various responses to him. Verse 1 of chapter 2 reads this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, 
wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people. Of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Thank you for your love that you show to us. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together with our Bibles open before us, that we can read it and that we can study it. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring us wisdom and, and insight. Father, not just wisdom and not just knowledge, but we pray that you would motivate us, that you would move in our hearts that our lives would be changed, that we would be motivated and moved to be obedient followers of you, worshipers of you. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So as I mentioned, I I want us to investigate, and I want us to consider the three different responses to the birth of Christ the King that we see in this passage. But before we get to the specifics of those responses, I think it would serve us well if we attempt to answer some of the questions that naturally arise from this text. And there are a few of them. Uh, the, the first question is, is who, who are these wise men? Who are these magi that Matthew tell us about? Well, the term wise men suggests that they were learned men. They were men who studied. They were men who were, who were perhaps were on the level of having a, a, a doctoral degree in various different disciplines. These wise men, these magi, would, would study things such as medicine and history and, and religion and prophecy and astrology and astronomy. And the particular magi and the particular wise men that, that Matthew tells us about here were obviously experts when it came to the stars, when it came to, to, to the, the heavenly hosts that were up in heaven, the, all of the stars and the planets. They, they knew those things. They knew the routes. They knew everything about those things. And that's particularly important for us to know because Matthew tells us that when they had seen a special sign in the sky, this something that was abnormal, something that that got their attention, they responded to it. Now, it's important to note that the Greek word that's translated star here in in chapter 2 is also a word in Greek that could be used to refer to a, a, a supernova or a comet 
or, or a, a special alignment of planets. Um, so whatever it was that these magi saw up in the sky, it was something that was not normal. It was out of the ordinary. It got their attention, and it, and it caused, and it's something that moved. And it was something that caused them to want to go follow it. Here's another question, though. Why would they want to go follow it, depending on where it went? I, those, those are kind of questions that come to my inquiring mind. Why would, they have, why would they have wanted to follow something that was moving in the heavens like that? Well, according to verse 3, Matthew tells us that they equated the arrival of this supernaturally placed phenomenon in the sky. They equated that as a sign that the birth of the one who had been born king of the Jews had occurred. Now, if you're like me, I want to know, well, how did they get that? Where did that connection come from? How did, they, how did they come to realize that this special star in the sky was equated to the birth of the king of the Jews? Matthew doesn't tell us. Thankfully, the Bible, though, doesn't leave us without any clues. In fact, in the Old Testament book that bears his name, we read about a young Hebrew boy named Daniel. Daniel had been taken into captivity in the land of Babylon after the Babylonians had invaded and conquered the nation of Judah. And while he was there, he garnered the favor of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar because God's hand was upon Daniel and because of his prophetic gifts. In fact, that favor that Nebuchadnezzar had for Daniel translated to him ultimately being promoted all the way to the head of the Magi in Babylon. And that was a title and a position that he kept even after Babylon was conquered by the nation of Persia. Why is that important? Well, it's important because as a Hebrew, Daniel knew his Old Testament scriptures and he knew the prophecies concerning the one who would be born king of the Jews, the Messiah. And those prophecies were, were, were things that he would have handed down to the Magi who he was over. And generation after generation, he would have told them about this one who would come, who would be the sovereign king of the universe, the Messiah, born in the land of Judah. In, in the, he would be a Jew born there. And, and as I said, he would have been familiar with all the Old Testament prophecies. He would have been familiar with, with the prophecy about Christ in Numbers 24, verse 17, where we read this, that a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The star and the scepter are, are parallel to one another there. And so the star rising out of Israel was literal in the fact that it was something that could be seen and it, and it necessitated that there was a, a scepter, a, a king that was born there. So though we're not told it specifically, I believe it's quite possible to connect the dots that the scriptures already give us that allows us to understand that Daniel's lasting testimony an enduring testimony to the Magi of his own day and a testimony that would have been passed down from generation to generation of Magi after him was that the Messiah, the one who would be that universal sovereign ruler, would be born of Jewish descent in the land of Israel and that his birth would be signaled by a special sign, a star in the sky. And so I believe that throughout those ensuing centuries, those Magi searched the heavens. They looked for that sign, and when they saw it, they began to make their journey to go and worship this one who would be born king of the Jews in Bethlehem. Now, let's just pause for a moment, though, and think about that, because I think it's worthy of our thought for just a moment that God did in this story just what we discussed a couple of weeks ago. God condescended 
to speak to these magi stargazers by placing a star in the sky that would get their attention. Is that not amazing to you? It is to me. Because I think about it this way. In doing that, God showed great grace to them. And we might want to know, well, why would he do that? Because after all, these stargazers were exactly that. They were men who, who were steeped in astrology. They worshiped false gods. They worshiped the stars. They were pagan idol worshipers. And we might wonder, why would God show grace to them? What had they done to deserve his grace and his mercy? They were a bunch of, of, of guys who didn't deserve God's grace and mercy. So why would God do that? Well, let me just tell you, that is the essence of the gospel to begin with. It is the essence of the gospel that God shows grace and mercy, that God shows kindness and patience and love toward people who haven't earned it. Toward people just like those pagan, magi, wise men, just like people like me and you. You see, the reality is that none of us deserve God's favor. None of us have earned it. We're all fatally broken sinners. What we've earned is God's wrath. But just as he did with these magi and wise men, so he does with us. In his love and in his mercy, God condescends. He, he chooses to come down to our level to reveal to us the greatest gift ever given. His son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, what will our response be to him? Well, let's investigate what the responses are that we see in this text this morning. As I mentioned, Matthew doesn't say that there were only three wise men. That is only assumed by the fact that, that three gifts are given to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But I believe it's probably much closer to the truth that a large entourage of wise men and magi made their way. They mounted up along with their servants on camels and made their way many, many miles on a long trip west following this star that ultimately led them to Jerusalem where they asked the question that we see there in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, this is what I want you to understand. Such an entourage coming into the city, the capital city of Jerusalem, would have not gone unnoticed. It would have attracted much attention, and it obviously attracted the attention of this king who was there, Herod the Great. Now, notice according to verse 3, it says that Herod was troubled by their appearance there in Jerusalem, and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. That's an interesting phrase to me. Why would all of Jerusalem, all of the Jews, been troubled along with Herod? Well, that's because Herod was not someone who would have appreciated the fact that someone else in his kingdom had been born with the title that the Romans had given to him. He was one who really appreciated and loved his own title. He was one who, who liked the fact that he was the one who was king of the Jews. And so the first response that I want us to see to Christ the King this morning, I think can be characterized by this one word, and I want to throw it out there to you. It's the first hook on your outline this morning. It's the word antagonism. Antagonism. By the time that these magi show up in Jerusalem, Herod's about 70 years old and he's in very poor health. By all accounts in history, it tells us that he was on the decline. But even so, that didn't, feel, that didn't prevent him from feeling threatened by this arrival of this great entourage. By all accounts, he was a very suspicious man, even a paranoid man. 
So when these magi came into this city looking for someone who supposedly had been born king of the Jews, well, that was threatening news for Herod. And listen, when Herod was threatened, he did bad things. In fact, Herod felt threatened by one of his own wives. And and he felt like she was going to take the throne from him, so he had her killed. He not only had her killed, he had her mother killed along with her. One time he also felt like his sons were going to be doing a coup against him and taking his throne from him, so he had both of his sons killed. It was said of him at one time, you'd be better off being one of Herod's pigs than you would his one of his sons. This was the kind of man that Herod was. He was a wicked man. He was an evil man. He was a man who, when he felt threatened by you, he killed you. That's how he responded. He would do anything to protect his own sovereignty. And I want you to know, the feeling of being threatened is what explains Herod's response of antagonism. You see, antagonism responds by being th- when it's threatened by saying, look, you're not going to take my throne from me. I will be in charge of things going on in my, in my kingdom. And if you try to take my throne from me, I will come at you with full force. Whenever he felt threatened, that was Herod's MO. Now notice though, Herod didn't know who it was who threatened him though. When these magi come wanting to worship the one born king of the Jews, Herod had no idea who this was. And so he begins a little investigative process. First thing he does is he calls the chief priests and the scribes, and he says, look, I need you guys to search the scriptures and tell me where are the prophecies, where will this Christ child be born? And they respond to him by saying, look, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we believe that the birthplace of the Messiah will be in Bethlehem. So now he's at least got a location. But then he takes that information, goes back to the Magi and the wise men and says, you said that that star, y'all been following, you've seen it for a while. Exactly when did that star first appear? Because you see, if the star's appearance coincided with the birth of the child, then if he could find out how long that star had been in the sky, he could tell about how old the child would be by this time. And then he would at least have the information of where the child was and how old the child was. And so he's putting together this information because he's going to eliminate the threat. But he doesn't want to reveal all of that. So he goes in verse 8 and he tells the wise men, look, you guys go on to Bethlehem, worship the Christ child, then come back and report to me because I want to go worship him also. Yeah, right. Liar, liar, pants on fire. I told the first service, he gets five Pinocchios for verse 8. He had no desire to worship Christ the King. His only desire was to eliminate the threat to his autonomy and his power. And what that is revealed to us later, if we read further down in verse 16, when, it's, when he, he, he becomes angry when the wise man did not come back to report to him and tell him exactly where the Christ child was, So in response to that, he orders the death of all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Herod decided, if I can't find the exact child to kill, I'll kill them all. What a horrible response. What a a truly reprehensible display of selfishness and evil. 
an obviously extreme display of antagonism toward Christ the King. Unfortunately, antagonism is a common response to Christ. Now, for most, their antagonism would never equal the severity of Herod's call for the slaughter of young babies and children, but people respond antagonistically toward him nonetheless. You see, anytime you refuse to bow in worship to King Jesus, anytime you make a decision not to obey him and to do your own thing, your own way, according to your own rules, you effectively engage in the response of antagonism. Unfortunately, antagonism is quite natural because in our hearts, we just naturally believe we're the ones in charge. We're the ones that's going to dictate where we go and what we do. We're going to plot out our course in life. We're going to make our plans. We're going to push forward, and we're going to put that ball down the field further and further with every play until we finally reach the end zone that we want to choose to go to. We set our own goals. We set our own plans. We're in charge. We're going to do things our way. And in our hubris and in our pride, we quite frankly don't, don't care for someone else who's going to come in and steer us off the course that we plan for ourselves. You're not, you're not going to come in here and tell me how to live. You're not going to come and tell me what I need to do. I don't need you telling me where my allegiances need to lie. I already got that figured out. And in our desire to rule our own lives, many will overthrow the rule of Christ and his church. And that, dear friends, is nothing more than a response of antagonism. There's another response we need to be aware of, though. Consider, consider the next hook on your outline. The next point I want you to see is the response of apathy. Apathy. You see, if antagonism says, you will not rule over me, apathy says, you don't matter to me. In fact, I couldn't care less about you. Quite honestly, I believe that's a common response among many in our world today as it pertains to Jesus. And truthfully, as shocking as Herod's behavior was, I find the response of the Jewish people and particularly the Jewish religious leaders to be even more shocking. Because consider this, these pagan magi, wise men, had traveled a long distance to seek out and to worship this Jewish king because of this appearance of this star in the sky perhaps as far as a thousand miles. But in contrast, all of Jerusalem had failed to find the announcement of the birth of her king sufficient enough reason to travel the six short miles that it took to get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And it was not only the arrival of the Magi that would have alerted them to the birth of Christ, Consider all of the other miracles that had occurred. Do you remember even before Christ was born? You remember it was Elizabeth who was, who was old and had never been able to, to get pregnant. And suddenly she was impregnated. And, 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 and her husband, Zacharias, was a priest who was there in the temple. And he was carrying out his duties and, and, and all of these things that occurred. And then this lady who had never, who was barren, suddenly becomes pregnant with John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. That made huge news. And yet it had gone unnoticed. Just another example, think of the shepherds that had come to worship Jesus there in Bethlehem. 
They were not necessarily the most believable bunch, but they sure liked to talk. And in fact, when they left the manger, you know what the Bible says? Luke tells us that they went and told everybody what they'd seen. They told about the angels that had revealed the birth of Christ to them. They shared it far and wide. Evidently, people didn't pay much attention to it. What about eight days after Jesus had been born when he was presented in the temple? And you remember he came across the old man Simeon and also Anna. And they began to prophesy and make a big deal out of the fact that this baby was being brought there to the temple in Jerusalem. It was wide news and nobody cared. I'm telling you, when the Magi showed up, it was just one more in a long string of ways in which the revelation of the birth of Christ the King had been delivered to his own people, and yet evidently there were no one who were really expecting it and looking for it, and no one who sought him out. Even after Herod had summoned the chief priests and the scribes about where the Messiah would be born, even after all the city had been alerted to this great entourage of people arriving in their town, no one followed the Magi down to Bethlehem to confirm that the Christ child had been born. The miracles nor the Magi produced a yearning in the hearts of the Jews. All they did was yawn. I find that shocking. It amazes me that the very ones who had the most knowledge, the ones to whom the mysteries of the incarnation had been revealed from ages past, the very people from whose bloodline the Messiah would come. It was not them who sought the Messiah. They were not the ones camped out in Bethlehem awaiting Christ's birth. In fact, even after the Magi departed, the Jews just stood back. Evidently, the news of the birth of Christ was not news enough. They responded to God's revelation with apathy. Listen, the word apathy is defined as a lack of feeling or emotion, a lack of interest or concern. And that seems to accurately describe the Jews. They had been brought face to face with the reality of the fulfillment of what had been promised to them in the Old Testament. Yet they just waved it off as it didn't matter. We might want to know why. Well, some of it could be just disbelief, disbelief that a child could do something that they felt like only a king could do, and that's to overthrow the Roman government. That's possible. It's also fear, because you saw that, that when Herod was, was, was troubled, all of Israel, all of Jerusalem was troubled too, because they were afraid if they went to try to worship one born king of the Jews, that the one who had been appointed king of the Jews might do bad things to them. So fear probably played a part somewhere. But I, I think it probably... I think it probably is more along the lines of the fact that it was just a lack of interest. There just wasn't enough in it for them to go and worship this Christ. Regardless of what they might have said with their words, their actions clearly communicated that Christ the King didn't matter to them. They could have cared less. I firmly believe that apathy is the greatest risk to our world today particularly for those of us who live here in the U.S. And I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to rattle some pans. Y'all just, y'all just be okay with that because I'm rattling my own, all right? We live in a world, we live in a culture where we have more 
than all the rest of the world and all of the generations before us. We have, we have more wealth. We have more food. We have more access to, to good things. We have more opportunities. We have more, more, more of all things than much of the rest of the world does at this same exact time today and certainly much more than all of the generations that have come before us. We have more. And while those are things, just like we did at Thanksgiving, we want to stop and thank God for his blessings on our lives, and we ought to thank God for those, I will also look you straight in the eye and tell you we've got to be wary of those and be on guard against them too. Because those very things for which we are thankful are also the very things that if we are not careful will anesthetize us, deaden us, cause us to just become all warm and cozy and, and, and just comfortable to the degree that we don't see the need that we actually have. We can become apathetic to the gospel and apathetic to Jesus. I saw a post this week that stuck out to me because I thought it accurately reflected the devastating effects that apathy can have and that what it can grow and produce. The post highlighted the fact that when, when Christ and his church are not priorities in the home for parents or for their kids, well, then when their kids grow up, Christ and his church will become even less of a priority for them. And then when those kids have families of their own and raise their children, then, then the priority for Christ, guess what? It becomes they have no priority about Christ and the church in their homes. And then when they grow up and begin to, to continue to reproduce and raise families, it eventually ends to the point where we raise a group of people and, and a generation comes to four who have no concept of God and they have no concept of the grace and mercy that is offered to them through Christ and they have no concept of the beauty of the fellowship of His church. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize that apathy is not only dangerous for you and for your own soul, but it is hideously dangerous for those who fall under your authority and your influence and come after you. So those are two responses that are on display in this passage, antagonism and apathy. But thankfully, we find a third. And we find that third bullet point for you there is the word adoration. Adoration. We, we're alerted to this response when the wise men arrive in Jerusalem. They go there. They say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Now, what we can be, cannot be sure of is how long it took their caravan to get there. Many, many suggest that it was many, 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 many months of traveling, as the carol says, over field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star to seek and worship this newborn king. And what I want you to know is that that act, what, what that represents is that is a great cost to these men. Consider all that it cost them. These wise men, as they sacrificed in order to go and to worship Christ the King. You know, sometimes, sometimes we, we, we measure cost in the way of finances. We talk about how much something's going to cost us money-wise, and we hang a dollar figure on it. But you know, many of us also measure cost with how much time 
something's going to take. Because for many of us, time is our greatest commodity. It's the thing that we have the least amount to give. Imagine, imagine these guys. It took, it took time. It took finances. It took all of their resources. It was very much a drain on them physically because they had to travel on the back of a camel. I've never done that. Shockingly, I know to many of you. I can't imagine it's much fun. And I can't imagine doing that day after day after day for months, if not year, to finally reach Jerusalem. This was no lightly thought through worship experience for these magi. No, their response of adoration required their total commitment to seek and to worship Christ the King. Don't miss that. Brothers and sisters, that is what wise men and women still do. I know you've seen the, the, the lapel pin. I know you've seen the sign. And I know that it may be a little trite and a little used. But I want you to know, wise men and women still seek him. They still do. Wise men and women still respond to God's revelation of Christ by seeking him in order to worship and to adore him. And I want you to know, worshiping and adoring Christ involves more than just singing songs about him at Christmas time. It involves more than occasionally making it a priority to attend church. No. The response of adoration to Christ the King retires, it requires the total giving of yourself to him. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in very clear terms in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which then he says is your reasonable act of service. It's your reasonable act of worship to do that. We could say it this way. True adoration says... I love you, Lord, and I give my life to serve you, not just occasionally, but all the time. And all of my talents and all of my abilities and all of my possessions and all of my time, all of it is yours, every bit of it. You do with it as you see fit. You use me any way you want. I want to flame out for you. You put me in any situation you want to put me in because there is nothing in this life. There is nothing in the life to come that is more valuable to me and worth more to me than you are. So I'm giving myself completely and totally over to you. Brothers and sisters, that is what the response of adoration demands. So today's text has revealed these three different responses to us. Herod the Great responded with antagonism. He sought to destroy Jesus. He said, you're not going to take my throne. You're not going to rule over me. The people in Jerusalem and the religious leaders, well, they responded differently. They responded with apathy. They basically said, Christ, you don't really matter to me. You have no effect on me. I don't really care who you are and what you do. The Magi and the wise men, they responded to the revelation of Christ with adoration. They said, we're willing to sacrifice everything and all to come and bring you honor. 
what will your response be? I want you to know that just, just as God did for Herod and just as he did for the Magi and the wise men and just as he did for those religious leaders, God has been gracious to you as well. He's been gracious to you in revealing to you the coming of the Savior, the Messiah, Christ the King. Through his scriptures, God has unveiled the gospel of Jesus that salvation and abundant life is available to all who will bow their knee and confess him as Savior and Lord. The question is, how are you going to respond to that revelation? You're going to respond with antagonism? Refusing to allow the Lord to be the Lord of your life? Refusing to bow your knee and your heart before him? Are you going to respond apathetically and indifferently and just decide that he's not worth it? You just don't really care? I want you to know if you choose either of those responses, you're going to end up missing out on the greatest gift ever given. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, we read that the angel of the Lord came to Joseph when he found out that Mary was pregnant with a baby that was not his. And he says, listen, she is, she is uh, with child of the Holy Spirit. But you, you stay with her and you name that child Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Listen, that's so incredibly important because it tells us what our greatest point of need is. Our greatest point of need is that we need to be saved from our sins. You may have come in here today thinking that you needed something else a whole lot more than that. I want you to know on the authority of God's word, there is no greater need in your life than to be saved from your sins. And Jesus has been the one who's been given to come in to do that for you. It is our sin that separates us from God. And were it not for Christ, our sin would condemn us to hell for eternity. Jesus Christ has been born to live a perfect, sinless, holy life and then die in the place of sinners just like you and just like me. And in doing so, he satisfied the wrath of God against sin. And as a result, he offers forgiveness and he offers eternal life to all who will by faith place their complete trust in him. And I want you to know something as important as that and something as life-changing as that and something as eternal as that is not something that you should wave off as being unimportant. It's something that you should reject. The message of the gospel is not to be responded to antagonistically or apathetically, but rather you should fall on your knees in adoration of the one who has come to deliver you from that which you have earned, death, hell, and judgment, and to bring you that which you have not earned, salvation, and everlasting life. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Wise men, women, boys, and girls will respond to Christ the King by receiving his gift of salvation and devoting their lives completely to him. Will you do that today? Will you respond to Christ the King by presenting your body as a living sacrifice to him? Giving yourself completely to the one who gave himself up for you. In light of his gift and in light of eternity, that is the only wise response. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us in sending your son Jesus We thank you for that wonderful gift. We thank you that there is nothing 
more valuable, more important, more life-changing than him. And so I pray today that as you move and as you speak to us in this room, that your spirit of conviction will fall upon us. If there's one here who's never bowed their knee before you in repentance and in faith, that today would be that day that you would bring conviction to their lives, that they would not reject you and respond antagonistically, that they would not wave you off apathetically, but that they would drop to their knees in adoration of that which you have brought to them. And Father, I pray that for the rest of us, that that is our testimony, that today we would truly investigate and look into our lives and determine how often do we respond to you in these different ways. How often is our response antagonistic? How often is our response apathetic to living a life of obedience? Lord, may you change our hearts to be that of adoring you, worshiping you, living our lives completely and totally for you. I pray this prayer in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.